Hey, uh, welcome back. My name is Rama Balasubramanian, your host for today's podcast. Um, today's, today's session is a continuation of a series of podcasts with uh, business leaders that I conduct on behalf of the Education Committee at the uh, Society of Information Managers, SIM for short, uh, and this is the Portland chapter. Today, we have a very distinguished and, uh, and well-known name uh, in the technology space uh, around the nation, very specifically here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Fred Pond. Uh, many of you listeners might already have come in touch with Fred or already know him or work closely with him. Great guy, um, has, has well over um, four decades of, uh, of relevant technology experience and rich technology experience, a lot to learn from Fred. Uh, let me start by thanking Fred for uh, agreeing to do this session. It's going to be extremely um, informative, information rich and, and, and enlightening for most of us, including me. Um, so uh, without further ado, uh, I'm turning it over to, uh, to Fred. Thanks. Thank you, Rama. And it's nice to be here this morning. And yeah, you're right. I, I had a, I've been in the workplace and you know, around technology uh, for a, over 40 years. And uh, I want to start by just kind of giving a, a synopsis or a, a, a discussion around how I got to where I am today, um, 45 years after it all got started. So um, I grew up in a small town in southeastern Idaho called Idaho Falls. About 30,000 people lived there when I grew up there back in the 60s um, and 70s. Uh, it's probably now 75,000. It's grown as everything else has. Um, I started working really early in my life. and I had a paper route. I don't know. I'm dating myself, but a lot of people don't know what a paper route is, but <laughs> I papers to doors uh, as a kid. Um, and then I mowed lawns and, and helped people with uh, lawn care in the neighborhood and that stuff before I was legally, uh, you know, 16 years old and could work. So I worked early on, was kind of entrepreneurial, wanted to right. make a money, have a little cash, uh, you know, yeah. have some yeah. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then I got my first, I would call it real job where I had a paycheck and taxes taken out and everything. And that was pumping gas. And again, here in Oregon, you'll know what that is because we still have people that pump gas. But back in those days, there was no such thing as self-service. So I pumped gas for, for at, a, at a gas station um, and we did all the full service things and that stuff. Um, and I did that for probably six, eight months, part-time after school and things like that. And then I really got my first, what I would call professional job. Um, and I, I, because of someone I knew at, and high school, um, he told me that his mother was looking for a delivery driver to deliver office supplies and office equipment in our local town. And so I interviewed and I got the job and I started that when I was um, midway through my sophomore year in high school um, and did that for about a year where I would go in after school and I would run, do a delivery run and, and then help them stock shelves and do things in the office equipment business. And after about a year doing that, the guy that ran their service department, because they also did a lot of servicing of office equipment, 
typewriters, you know, things that people won't remember now much, but mechanical calculators, there were no electronic calculators back in those days. They were mechanical and had a little motor in them and drove uh, mechanical parts that, that uh, did it. I also, they did copiers and calculators and, and things. So just, I got asked to go in and, and be an apprentice cleaning equipment to start with and then learning how to repair it. Um, and I really thrived and loved that work. And so I did it um, through my junior year in high school, the whole year um, and into my early senior year in high school. And I liked it so much. And I was making really good money for the day and, and for a kid with just, I was still quote in high school that I decided in December of my senior year of high school that I was gonna quit school and drop out and that I was gonna work full time and I could make a lot of money and, and do those things. So I did that. Those um, things were um, cutting edge at that time, right? I mean, so yeah, so yeah. it's, yeah. So still technology, uh, oh. it's still top of the line, uh, you know, so it's just that we have come far ahead from there, but still top of the line for that time, yeah. No, yes, definitely it was. And electronics were just starting to come out with the first electronic calculators. So I started to learn a little bit about that stuff. And I was fascinated by electronics and how that was going and elect, uh, photocopy machines were coming out now. And, and so that was all electronics too. So it was, it was interesting and I, I thrived on it and I enjoyed it. So I did that. I did go back at night school uh, and take some correspondence classes and I got my high school degree, but I took an odd path to it. Um, and I did that for about a whole nother year. And then the service manager and myself and another person in the company decided we would wanted to go off and start our own company. So my entrepreneurial spirit stepped in and we went off and we started from scratch an office equipment supply and repair company. Um, and we did, I did that for two more full years. Um, and then I got the itch, um, and it wasn't that I was bored, but I finally decided, boy, Otto Falls is a small town. I'm doing a lot of the same things. It's time to do something else and I, I should go to college. So I decided I wanted to learn more about electronics because I was doing electrical repairs on equipment. So I decided I'd go to college and study electrical engineering. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, nice. yeah. yeah. So a little learning experience. I, I you know, hadn't, I'd been out of high school three and a half years, you know, and I dug into college and. Um, I started kind of slow and I got through it. And after three semesters in electrical engineering, I, I was not real happy. I mean, you had organic chemistry, you had physics, you had third semester of calculus, you had an electrical engineering class. Um, and I got one um, elective and I chose to do an economics class as an elective. And out of those five classes, the only one I really liked was economics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I decided, okay, I'm a year and a half into college, I'm going to switch. And I ended up switching and going into business. Um, and then over the next three and a half years, finished uh, an accounting degree. Great. But a minor in computer science. Computer science was starting to form in those days. This is the early 80s. Um, and I had taken a Fortran class in engineering. They had, had you had to educate on Fortran. Um, I took a basic programming class in the business school, and then I took a COBOL class. So again, this is aging me, but those were the languages that I grew up on. Not really. Uh, all three languages I've written code in. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yeah, no, um, I don't know what that says about me, but 
<laughs> hey, you're older than you think, I guess. But yeah, so I did that. And then when I got out of college, as I graduated, um, I took the CPA exam and I passed it the first time I took that. And then I went right to work for Arthur Anderson and company. Oh, wow. Yeah. At that time, there were eight large, they were called the big eight uh, yeah. accounting firms. And I went to work for Arthur Anderson and I uh, chose to go to work in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, which was about a three hour drive from my hometown. So I was familiar. It was close. I understood it. I loved to ski. I'd been growing up as a kid skiing and Salt Lake is as good as it gets for skiing, uh, you know, there. So started in Salt Lake City um, and I started as an accountant and an auditor, um, and, you know, and, and did that for nine months. And I really didn't like the work very much. And then there was an opportunity because I had the technology experience. And in college, I had learned, um, actually started, I learned about spreadsheets on something called VisiCalc, um, which on the Apple II. Um, and then when I went to Anderson, our accounting uh, group used 123, Lotus 123. Uh -huh. And I was at Lotus 123. And that an opportunity came up with Anderson. They, Arthur Anderson had three divisions, the audit uh, and accounting group, the tax group, and then they had this small group they called information consulting. And the information consulting guys mostly wrote mainframe programs and did big, big projects on mainframes in those days. And they had an opportunity to do an analysis and build um, a financial model for a savings and loan and they wanted to do it in a spreadsheet and they had no spreadsheet skills within their division. And I was the best spreadsheet jock um, in the accounting side. So they asked me to work for three months to help build this uh, model around a savings and loan and all its services and all its branches. And what happens if you mess with one part of it, what's the resulting financial impacts and things. So I, I spent three months on that and I loved it. And um, when I finished the project, I got my review and it was a really positive review. And the consulting guy said, would you like to come work in our division? And I looked at it. <laughs> so I then moved into um, the consulting division of Anderson, which then became later called Anderson Consulting and that today is called Accenture. Yeah. Um, so that was my... Uh, career uh, in getting really into hardcore systems work for the first time uh, back, and this was in 1984 um, when I joined the consulting group there. And then I got transferred from Salt Lake City to Seattle. They had a need for more people in Seattle, and I got an opportunity and an enticement to move to Seattle in 1985. And I stayed with Anderson five more years until 1990. Um, and then at that point, I'd been with the firm about seven years, and you start to make a transition from being a delivery guy, a guy that goes out and installs and designs and, and delivers systems, to being more of a salesman. How do you sell the next project, and how do you do yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and through that process, I decided I'm a delivery guy. I'm not a good sales guy. Right, okay. I decided and sat down with uh, my partner, the, the, my boss at Anderson had said, I think I want to make a change. And it was common for Anderson people to, to do that, that didn't want to be the sales and the, and, and the rainmaker type person there. So 
they gave me some time and I used my network and contacts I had and um, uh, met with a company that I'd actually pitched a job to in my, in my failed sales life um, called Stevedoring Services of America. They unloaded cargo ships all up and down the West Coast and they were looking for a project manager and a senior developer type person um, to work for them. And I ended up leaving Anderson and joining, um, it's called SSA Marine now, right. uh, in 1990. Um, and it was a smooth transition, went right over there, um, took off on that. And then over a seven year career in that cargo logistics business, I went from being that project manager, senior developer, to managing all the developers, to managing all of what we call the operational systems or the cargo management systems. Um, and then I actually took over and ran all of the technology for that company um, between 1990 and 1995. And I was the equivalent, they didn't call it CIO in those days, that term hadn't been invented. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I took over as, and ran that um, there from 95 to 97. Great. Um, and uh, really enjoyed it. It was a great job. I had a great boss. Um, great story from him is he took me aside when, it, when I took over all of IT and he said, I want you to take chances with technology. We need to use it strategically. If you don't make a mistake that costs me a million dollars, you're not doing your job right. Job, yeah, yeah. He gave me that freedom to take chances and push the envelope. Um, and we did do that. And I started a, a, a process and a system there where we rewrote all the technology for the cargo management. Um, and I started it about 1995. And when I left there in 97, it was live with its first pilot uh, and running it. And they evolved that business and actually spun it off as a, as a separate technology company in 2000 called Tideworks Technology. And they now operate a software company that supports, I think more than a hundred uh, large cargo ship loading facilities around the world today. So it, it was great to be the, the foundation of leading to a product yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. So, but as everything goes, um, I got recruited and, and a recruiter convinced me um, and my wife was from Portland. I had met her actually um, when I was on a consulting gig uh, in the mid eighties um, down here in Portland. Um, and so then she had moved back to Seattle with me and um, we started a family up there and everything. With SSA, we, I was traveling a lot globally at that time. Uh, she wanted to move back to Portland to be closer to family, and I got recruited, and I came down here in 1997 and took over IT and, and ran all of technology for the Schnitzer group of companies. Schnitzer Steel is the most visible and public one, but at that time, the family had six other companies um, that were privately owned by the family and run, and we ran them all as a shared service, um, and so I ran all that. Uh, starting in 1997, and I did that for eight years, um, and we transformed all their technology. It was the, the days when PCs were becoming more common, and we put PCs on every desk and put networks in and got rid of green screens, and, and we put in a new ERP and, and a human resource systems and did all kinds of automation uh, and work with them. Um, but as always, things change, and... Um, about a year, about 2004, 
the Schnitzer Group of Company or Schnitzer Steel Industries got under investigation for the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a big deal. And um, when the feds came in and started to do the investigation, you know, where do they go for information? They come to the IT guy and right. was providing all the emails and all the documents and all the transactions that the company had ever done as they were doing this investigation. And because of that, I, I made sure that everything we were giving them was the right things and it, you know, aligned with what they were asking for. So I reviewed a lot of the documents and through that, I figured out what the leadership of the company was doing. Right. Guilty. And that did not sit well with me. So I resigned um, immediately when I kind of had it figured out. Um, and then the executive team came back to me and, and convinced me that I should stay. They were in a mess. They had this investigation going on. They were in the middle of an acquisition. They had too many fires. They needed me. And why don't I become a contractor and I could cut my own deal for what I wanted to make and, and they would indemnify me from any risks. And so I did all the work. And so I, I switched from um, being an employee to being a contractor. Um, and a month after that, the CEO, the CFO, the VP of international sales, uh, and one other executive all resigned on the same day uh, to pursue other activities. Great. Great. <laughs> so it was good position to be in. I ended up staying there about six more months while the transition and the new management team came in. They had to bring in a new CEO, CFO, all those things, and a new CIO, and they tra I transitioned to that, and, and we did that. And so then I left there um, in 2005, and I used my network again. I reached out to my network and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be looking for a job. And, and I got a couple of contacts, and I met with a company called North Pacific Lumber Group, and ended up joining them as their CIO um, immediately uh, during the, the, that thing, uh, the transition. Uh, and they were large, about a billion and a half dollar privately held. They were employee owned uh, wood products distribution company, uh, did business all over the US. Um, right. And ran technology there, modernized them, did a lot of fun work there. But the crash of housing in 2007 and eight, and then all the fallout of the banking and, and all the issues there crushed that company. Our business shrunk between 2007 and 2009. It was cut in half in size. Um, and then the banks put us into bankruptcy the January of 2010 uh, when they did not want to renew our, our loan. Um, and so then I worked and started to tear that company apart and we sold it in pieces. And at the same time, I sent out through my network again an email saying, hey, I'm going to have to have another job. What's going on? And I actually um, ended up uh, having interviews with three different companies and received offers from three different companies here in town. One was called um, Everaz North America. It was a steel company and Schnitzer Steel um, had a steel mill. So I understood that. So they were interested and they made me an offer. It was also called Oregon Steel, but then got bought by the Russian company uh, Everaz and be, became Everaz North America. Also Esco, um, the steel products making company that's uh, here in town. They, they're no longer uh, their own. They got bought a couple of years ago by Weir uh, and they're now a part of that group. And then I also got an offer from Columbia Sportswear. Oh, thanks, yeah. I struggled a little bit with what I was gonna do, but I decided 
even though I didn't know apparel and footwear and I didn't know retail, I've always loved in a new business. So I dove in and took that job and took over technology for Columbia uh, in 2010 and had a great run of seven years until I retired from Columbia um, in February of 2017. Uh, I was completely done and had transitioned to a hand-picked replacement person there to run technology. Um, so that's kind of the story um, getting me to to the retirement, or I would now call it semi-retirement. So I now dabble with a little bit of consulting um, with some small clients and mostly with people I've known in the past, uh, you know, are, are the ones I help those things. Um, I sit on a couple of boards of companies here in town where I've been invited to be a board member. Um, I teach the regional leadership forum, RLF, that is a part of SIM. Um, and then I'm, spending a lot more time with my family and enjoying life and, and doing the fun things that at least semi-retirement are as I slow down um, and, and move, you know, to the next phase uh, of retirement. Those are all important. And thank you. That was, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, um, it's a very rich career you've had. And uh, thank you for going through all of those phases, um, different phases, different turns and, how you finally found yourself here. This is very useful, uh, very insightful. Um, the, uh, I picked up three or four key um, uh, nuggets here. One was that uh, all the way through, it seems like you listen to your heart a lot. Like, do I like being here? If I don't, uh, what do I like doing? You know, so, so that kind of, uh, it's clear in that transition from electronic engineering to business to, all those small transitions that you have made that kind of brought you here. So, um, so yeah, so that's one thing I picked up on that's very important. Um, so if I were to put something out there, I'd say, you know, um, listen to your heart, like be in touch with yourself, see what you yes. like, doing. try different things, um, you know? Yeah. So that's right. something. I, I, I think you've got to follow your passion. If you're not passionate aren't, and aren't really having fun. Right. Career is a drag versus a blast. You know, I always wanted to get up. You know, I, there were a few times in my career where I, I didn't want to get up in the morning, but most of the time I was so excited. And then when those few things came along, then I knew it was time to right. take a, turn in a different path. So I think yeah. you, you know, you can plan a career, but it's going to take different paths and you have to be flexible in rolling with the punches because you'll get surprised. Exactly. Yeah. No, um, well said. Um, the, the other one uh, thing I picked up on was um, you, you had a very rich network that you had built out and cultivated over a number of years. Um, so like you said, uh, some of these punches could, you could, you, many of these you anticipated, some you didn't. So, you know, like you wouldn't have expected your management to have gotten into um, illegal activities or, or, or unsavory activities. Yeah. So, um, so those things, your network helped you out there. So another word to the wise or, or to the folks who are listening is, um, you know, work actively on building a, a network. And it's just not a, a number of people, you know, it's like, how many of them do you actually spend time with and, and, and talk to and, and listen to and things like that. So, yeah, so that, that's another thing I picked up from uh, from what I heard. Um, I think it's critical. I mean, I always, and it's part of my upbringing with my mother, you know, and father when I was young was, you know, 
if I was mowing lawns, I didn't just mow the lawn and go. I always sat on the porch and talked to the people that lived at the house and made sure there wasn't something else and that everything was good. And you always have to do that with everybody in who you work with or for or around. I, I always felt, so I did that. So I always made great friends with, you know, obviously my boss, you know, that was either a CFO or a COO or a CEO. I had bosses of all three flavors uh, during my career you know, good relationships with them. You wanted that open, honest conversations and things. I did that with my staff. I did that with all the rest of the business people. So whether it was accounting folks that we were working with on an accounting system or uh, operational people in a plant, I made friends, I made that because people leave jobs and move to somewhere else. And if they have a great relationship and those things, what I found and what worked out was if you made a good impression, if you connected with them, that then if when there's a need and you re reach out to them, they'll actually follow up and they may guide you toward either toward an opportunity or to something else or give you advice. I leaned on that whole group through my career. Exactly. Wait a minute, I'm having this kind of a problem. Where do you go? And I did that with my SIM membership. Right. I joined SIM in 1995 right. in Seattle. I was with uh, Steve, the Steve Doring Company and I wanted to get more involved. I want to build my network out. and. I joined them up there and I was with that chapter a couple of years. And then in 97, when I moved down here, I transferred my membership down uh, and did it. And I used my, the friendships and relationships and I'd have coffee or drinks after work with people in SIM and, and pick their brains and do the, do the same, you know, have them do the same. Yeah. So uh, here's a bit of a plug for SIM. If you're not already a member, <laughs> consider <laughs> being a member. I know John Boone will like me a lot now because <laughs> he heads up membership. So, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, no, uh, uh, quite honestly, yes, be part of a, um, uh, of a net, of a group uh, of like-minded individuals, contribute, contribute, um, share, learn, you know, um, so all very important. Um, you know, uh, it's important to be able to know who to pick up the phone and ask a question about what. Um, so, so have that um, list in your mind ready or somewhere written down, it's useful. Uh, yeah. The other thing I picked up on um, was um, from this anecdote that you said about, you know, your manager saying, your manager from that uh, marine uh, offloading or unloading firm saying, if you're not losing a million bucks trying things, then you're not doing your job well. And, and that really is, is is enormous, like especially in that time frame, um, a million bucks will not, <laughs> not pocket change. Yeah. yeah. So it was like uh, so. What I take away from that is uh, take risks, take calculated risks, um, because if you don't take risks, you're not going to 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 go become better and bigger. Uh, and even honestly, in your career, as I as as you reflected, and as I hear. Uh, hear that or, you know, hear about it, it's more like you've taken a lot of risks, right? You've, you've taken a lot of calculated risks and you uh, changed your course till you found wh where your heart was leading you. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, you do want to, you want to manage the risk, you know, but you want to keep pushing and you, you never want to stop pushing forward. Technology, I mean, it, clearly in business itself, it's that way, but in technology, it's even more. There's constant change and you're always got to be pushing forward. Um, and I think the philosophy of, you know, push the envelope, take chances, do things, but you want to do it in a smart way, somehow be able to do it in small ways. So if there are problems with it, 
you can fail fast, fail quickly, regroup and keep going forward. So that's what we really did. I never did lose a million dollars when I was, right. was working right. with John uh, up there because we did, but we did push the envelope and we did hit the wall a few times um, as we were building that company that then became Tideworks Technology and, and has some incredibly sophisticated now technology around um, how you can you know, run a, contain, a container terminal and handle cargo and do it all electronically and, and a lot of graphics obviously now and in driving what the yard looks like and how you load a ship visually Great. and everything. So, yeah, no, it was, it was fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I would say fail fast, fail quick, uh, regroup, push forward and then stretch yourself. Take if when someone comes and says, we want to do something and you think, wow, that's a big project. That's going to be tough. Take it, stretch yourself. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, completely makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that's great. And, uh, uh, now, just to kind of uh, take it one step further, like um, since you've been in this space for for so long, what are your views on uh, on on emerging technologies like, say, blockchain or IoT or machine learning and artificial intelligence, data sciences, things like that? Yeah, and, and I'll yeah, come I back think... to to the more current IT security and cloud computing yeah. uh, in a second. But uh, I mean, in the in the looking ahead. Um, what, what do you see? Um, what's your take on that? I think for emerging technologies, you always want to be learning about them, striving to know more about what they can do in those things. You don't want to just dive in without knowing or not having a good use case for why you want to do it, but you really do want to know about um, new, new and emerging technologies. And one of the ways I did that was um, I, I got connected with a couple of private equity firms out of the Bay Area um, in, during my career. And they would have um, annual or semi-annual conferences where they would bring people down to the Bay Area and show new technologies and do things. And you'd learn about them. And then I could bring back ideas and have my, my team start to understand them. Blockchain, machine learning, AI are ones that have come along. So in the last maybe five years, there'll be more of those. You, they never end. So you always got to keep learning about the new emergings. Learn enough about them so that you can talk to them about your business uh, partners uh, and you can intelligently look at where it is. And when you see that great use case in the business, then let that drive the adoption or the pilot or a try at doing those technologies. Don't push the technology just for the technology's sake. Let a great use case or a, a problem in the business drive that and use that then and be able to pull that out of your toolkit at that point in time to say, hey, here's a great tool we could use, um, you know, in doing that. And, and that's going to continue to be what you've got to do as a, as a good technology leader. Be conscious, be conversant, be able to explain at a uh, comfortable level with both your team and the business, those things, and then find those use cases and, and, and implement them. Right. Yeah. So uh, like my uh, like my business class professor would say, uh, technology is here to serve business. So um, don't do new or emerging technology or new shiny thing just for the sake of doing new shiny thing. Um, yes. Make sure it's solving a business problem. That's really yes. that's that's very valuable. That's incredible. Um, yeah. And yeah. in, uh, in, in, in IT security and, and cloud computing and things like that, they're they're almost 
you know, mainstay now. And those are kind of uh, where most careers are, where most jobs are. Um, How's what's your take on some of those? Yeah, kind of- I mean, clearly in the last five years, both security and cloud have become mainstream. And and if you're not in, you know, involved and you don't have a good security posture in your company, or you're not pushing the cloud, whether it's a cloud first strategy um, or a, a cloud, you know, you've got to be moving there. Um, those are mainstream. Um, those are key. There'll be other twists and turns in the future, but those are good. And if your career and you're early in your career and you see those things, absolutely, it's great to jump on some of those growing areas. And I would say a lot of the jobs and opportunities in the last five years have been around, you know, DevOps and, you know, uh, infrastructure as a code leading to cloud integration, whether it's, and in most cases, it, it, the success has been around hybrid cloud because no one can just lift and shift everything off, you know, right. on, uh, that's on-prem out there. You've got to go through a transition. We started it in 2014 at Columbia um, and they're still, you know, moving to the cloud. I think they're probably in the neighborhood of 65%, I would guess now, of everything they do is in the cloud, but they still have 30% or so that still running in, in an on-prem. Now it's a co-location, it's very virtualized and it's a very hybrid cloud uh, situation. Um, but we started those foundations six years ago, so maybe almost seven. It takes a long time to get there. And it's, it's, it's meant a lot of opportunities for the engineers there and, and that stuff. And the same with the security group. You know, I think when I started at Columbia, we had one in security and I think now they have about five or six, you know, and, and it's that balancing act of, you know, how you develop the skills to keep that security. And those are really solid careers. Although I would say, as with any technology and anything, those will wane over time and something else will come up. So don't think, unless you have a total passion for security and that's what you really want to do and you move around doing security, you know, other places or being a cloud engineer or something, and and that's what you want. If you want to do other things, you're probably going to want to then do another stint of something and round it out, you know, especially if you want to become a CIO or, uh, you know, a, a senior IT leader, a VP or, or director that runs a company's IT, that takes technology, business sense, um, everything put together. So you don't get that from focusing in one area. But I think security currently, I mean, if there's a big shortage and big opportunities, and it's a great way to learn all about the technology because you're looking across everything and the people side of it, because believe me, if technology could solve security, it, it would be already solved. It's a people. Oh, yeah, those people. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really true. Yeah. So no, this was uh, this was great. Um, so so I'm coming up to the, the close of this. Uh, sure. You know. So um, so if you uh, had to leave our our listeners with a with a handful of thoughts. Um, uh, or any closing comments. Um, you, you have provided so much information. It's a, it's a, it's a lot for somebody to take in. They'll probably want to l- listen to this a couple of times over, and, <laughs> and, and take notes. Uh, so, no, I honestly mean it. Uh, um, I, for one, definitely learned a lot from this conversation. So, um, is there any closing thoughts? Any comments uh, that come to mind? Yeah, I think. I mean, maybe a few words of wisdom, or I don't know what you call out. I mean, we've touched on some of them, but I think you want to plan your career. You want to guide, but you've got to be flexible and take those turns in the road and do all those things, uh, you know, and don't be 
crushed when something, you know, surprises you and happens bad. I had a couple of those surprises. Uh, and, and then, you know, I think another thing that you, you want to be really careful of, and this is probably one that was a mistake for me was work-life balance. You need to make sure that, um, you're, you're, you've got a healthy family life and you've got great relationships with your children. I have a fabulous wife and uh, I mentioned, you know, I, I found we got connected at a client back in the Anderson days in the eighties. We've been married 34 years. We have two children, one that's 20, 26, but I didn't balance that all the time. And my kids and my wife suffered. She's amazing. So we got through it all and, and did all those things. But I, worked a lot more hours and traveled a lot in some jobs and you've got to balance those things. And hopefully, you know, you find ways to be, you know, you do need to work hard and you need to make a difference and be seen as a different company, but don't put everything there and then lose on the other side. Um, it, 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 it's too important. And, and I'm lucky that I had an amazing family and, and they supported me through it. Um, I think you want to be a lifetime learner. I think that's something I learned along the way that if you're not learning something new and whether it's technologies or, or emerging things and that stuff or business processes or t- uh, tenants and that stuff, just keep, you know, being a lifetime learner, read, read books, find things that you hear about and, and take a little time and, and try to do those things. I think you want to keep questioning everything and, and growing. Um, I think you need to set a core set of beliefs. And there's a couple of books that I've done that helped me with this. What are those core tenets and beliefs and ethical things that are just how you want to run your life at home and your life at business and know those and know that you can't draw that line. And I had that with the foreign corrupt practices. That was something that was within the tenants and I knew, and I had, I had to make a change. Um, right. ended up, you know, I did it in a strange way with becoming a con- contractor and then transitioning and, and that stuff. But I think that's important. Um, I think you, in your job and in your life and everything, I, there's a, a book start with why and a, and a guy named Simon Sinek, who I I think a lot of is a a writer and that stuff. And he's got several great books, but why is a great theme. I think whether it's with your team or whether it's in, you know, in your home life or whether it's in the business, you have to be able to tell the story of why you want to do something, why we're doing this initiative, why we want to change, why we're going to keep pushing forward. Because without why and everybody buying into, oh, I get why and I want, you won't have people behind you, you won't have consistency and you will not be able to then deliver the the solutions that you want if you don't have them. And I guess the one final one I'll say is in, in my leadership and what I tried to bring to companies and that is culture crushes strategy. And I think you build the right culture and you build a team um, within your organization and then spread it even to the rest of the company. And you have that proactive customer focus. This is what we're all about, culture. And we work together and we work for success. And our customer is the only thing that matters because without customers, we don't have a business. Um, And if you don't do those things, um, you know, it, it's a powerful tool. It's better than the greatest white paper strategy or, you know, I used to go on a lot of strategic receipt re, retreats with executives and we'd put together this great plan. But in several cases I saw where we didn't have the culture 
to carry it forward and really believe in it and do it. And the companies that I worked with that had those cultures, we crush it. Right, right. Yeah, no, uh, I remember my uh, uh, professor at Columbia saying, um, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, you know. So, <laughs> so, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a good one. Yeah, no, uh, thank you for bringing it all back and, and uh, rounding it off. Uh, it was, it was amazing. I, I wish I could keep going on. Um, it, it's great. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll have more of these sessions, but this yeah. is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, for your I, time. I think, you know, yeah. in today's world, we got to be quick. You know, you can't drag it on. You know, we need to hit the points and move forward. And, and I'm happy to be able to provide that. And obviously, yeah. anybody, you know, within SIM or is, is seeing the podcast and wants to reach out, I'm totally open to someone pinging me, whether it's through LinkedIn or or if they know my email or something, um, just contact me and, you know, happy to always help others. Uh, that's always been part of what I've wanted to do was, you know, if yes. you back, you get more. Yes, 100%. Yeah, and uh, on that note, um, yeah, thanks a lot, Fred. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you again. Appreciate you bet. Thank you, Rama. And, you know, hope, hope the rest of these go well for you as in your role. Thank you.